The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome back from lunch. Hope that it was nourishing and supportive for you. So now I'd like to tell a story. And this story, Tony alluded to it at the beginning. I've heard a number of times in different settings, Dharma talks, on retreats. I'd... um, for those of you who don't know, I'm trained as a scientist. And so for me, when I heard this story, I had a, like a certain type of uh, attitude towards it. I had a certain uh, response to it. And so but now I've had an opportunity to kind of look at the, um, the actual text as opposed to just um, hearing a Dharma talk, a Dharma teacher's interpretation of it. So I'd like to share this story that's given of why the Buddha gave the Metta Sutta. What was the context? What, what, was, what triggered him to give this Metta Sutta? Maybe we can learn something about it. So while I um, say this story, I invite you... I invite you to think... What do you imagine might be the function of this story? Why is this story created and preserved through this tradition for so long? We're going to put aside whether it's true. We're going to put aside whether it's accurate. There's no way of knowing, and that's not what my interest is here. Instead, let's, like, what's the role that this story might have? What function might it serve for us today as practitioners? How might it support us? And when the commentaries were created, why was it included in there? Why do you think the person who did the uh, commentaries, why did they insert this story? It may be true, it may not be true. I have no way of knowing. Nobody knows, I think. Well, I'll put that whole question aside. Okay, so here's this story. Maybe I'll give um, this tiny little, uh, no, I'll just incorporate into the story. So it is, was, maybe I'll say this, it was the tradition and it is still the tradition thousands of years later that monastics, they st- um, spend three months of the year when they are um, in one place. They don't go wandering. They aren't living in the forest. They aren't uh, um, homeless, you know, wandering from place to place. And this is has historical reasons. It's during what's called the rainy season in ancient India during the monsoon season all the villagers and the people who were growing crops did not like it when the monastics were walking around. They were ruining the crops. And or the... It's just difficult. It's... Right? Can you imagine this torrential rains? And there's no such thing as pavement, right? Everything is muddy. So it was just these three months out of the year where the monastics come together, not necessarily all in the same place, but they come together and then practice... Maybe some here and some there. Today, uh, IMS, Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, has a three-month retreat, kind of you know, out of this tradition that's in the fall. It's been every, ever since IMS got created. I think that's like 42 years now. And the 
local monastery, the one that's um, up near Ukiah, they have a three-month retreat as well. So this is a tradition that the monastics and lay people still contribute or participate in. So bef- the story is that before the rains retreat, large number of monks came together to see where the Buddha was, and the Buddha gave them meditation subjects, what, how, gave them meditation instructions. And then this group, this particular group of 500 monks, and I'll say something about this word 500. 500 is, uh, in Nepal, it just means a lot. <laughs> we don't have to mean that it's counted exactly. They have these, you know, seven is a few and 500 is a lot. Those are kind of like the two different numbers. So 500 monks left seeking suitable lodging for the rains retreat. They came to the foothills of the Himalayas and found a delightful location. In the background was a mountain made of stone slabs the color of blue-green crystal. It had cool, thick shade, and it was adorned with blue-green jungle groves. The ground was strewn with sand like foil inlaid with nets of pearls. And it was surrounded by pools of pure, sweet, cool water. There was a village nearby that had thousands of families, and they all lived close together. And the people that lived there were faithful and confident. And when the people saw the monks, they were filled with rapture and joy. When the monks went for alms runs, they readily fed the monks and begged them, stay here, stay here for the months of the rains retreat. The monks said yes. The villagers built meditation huts for the monks in the jungle groves. The monks entered the jungle grove and meditated energetically all day and all night. The splendor of those monks surpassed the splendor of the local tree deities. You can understand these maybe as tree spirits, tree sprites, tree fairies, something like this. The tree deities had abandoned their own trees, their own palaces, and were, and were roaming about so the monks could stay in the jungle grove. But then the tree deities began to wonder, when are they going to leave? Oh no, they've entered the rains retreat. They will be here for three months. It will be a long time before we can return to our trees and our palaces. So the tree deities said amongst themselves, come on, let's show these monks frightening objects. So at night, as the bhikkhus were meditating, the deities created the forms of terrifying goblins standing before each monk. And they made frightening sounds. When the monks saw those forms and heard those sounds, their hearts trembled. They became pale. They could not focus their minds. They were agitated by fear. They lost their mindfulness. And then when the tree deities saw that they had lost their mindfulness, they created foul odors. It seemed as if the brains of the monks were being crushed by these foul odors. They experienced severe headaches. Yet, the monks didn't inform one another what was happening. This went on for days. 
However, one day, when they had all assembled to attend on the Sangha elder, the elder noticed that all the other monks had become thin and pale and sickly. He asked what had happened. Why were they thin, pale, and sickly? All the monks shared that they had been frightened, and there was a foul odor, so they weren't able to concentrate, and they felt sick. So the elder monk said, we must tell the Buddha about this. So they all went back to the Buddha and told them what was happening. Then the Buddha, after having listened to them, instructed them, you can return to that jungle grove and practice and continue in practicing. But if you wish to be safe from these tree deities, learn this protective discourse. This will be your protection and your meditation subject. Then he gave the metta sutta, the ones that we have been listening So thus, the Blessed One spoke this discourse, the Metta Sutta, to those bhikkhus for the sake of practicing loving kindness, for the sake of protection, and for the sake of reaching concentration as a basis for insight. So having concluded the teaching, the Blessed One said to them, go back to the jungle grove, and on the eight days of the month for which you gather, as a monastic community, so around the full moon, recite this discourse together, give a Dharma talk, hold discussions, rejoice, and pursue, develop, and cultivate this meditation subject. The the monks went back and they acted accordingly. The tree deities were filled with rapture. The tree deities were filled with joy, thinking, the monks wish for our good and our welfare. So the tree deities were so happy, they swept the lodging of the monks. They prepared hot water for the monks. They massaged the backs of the monks. They massaged the feet of the monks. And they set up a guard at night to protect the monks. So having developed loving-kindness as they were taught, these monks took it as a basis, they aroused insight, and within that rains retreat, the three-month period, they all attained complete awakening. The end. So here's the story of why the Metta Sutta was told. What function, what what do you think, what, what... What role might this story have? We don't know, of course, right? But we can speculate. For you, as a listener, what do you think it might have had back then, 1,500 years ago, when this was composed? And um, today, how can this story be helpful for you? What, what, What role can this story have? Um, I just think of when you're doing like the Metta Sutta and you have, when you get to the difficult person, the, um, that being the tree deities in this case. 
that was the, um, I guess it's just, yeah, how to deal with um, unpleasantness and aversion. Maybe, yeah. Nice, nice. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else have some ideas? There's, there's one right here, too. A microphone next to Richard. It's too bad we didn't take that lesson when we Westerners became colonizers. (laughs) (laughs) So... I think in in addition to kind of like the enemy, there is something about um, listening to the Metta Sutta, like especially now in the meditation, um, that feels very um, uh, protective and Um, is it permeating? It kind of permeates. And in a way, I can imagine that um, it's, it can substitute or infuse kind of the mental space so that there is no space for fear anymore. Nice. Thank you, Sylvie. So it's like anti-fear. Yeah. Right, that they were frightened by these deities, and the Buddha said, "Well, do love and kindness for them." Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what struck me about the story um, was that it was uh, the uh, the uh, Metta Sutra um, was had a transformative effect. It wasn't just um, about overcoming fear. It actually influenced uh, others um, in and in actually turned them from, in effect, kind of being evil to being good. The tree spirits from being evil to being good? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll say one thing that really struck me is... Like the detail of this description here, right? That they came to this uh, place. That, let's see where I can have this a mountain made of stone slabs, the color of blue-green crystal. Cool, thick shade, beautiful sand, pure sweet water. A village nearby. If you're a, if you're living outside, this is a great place, right? Fresh water. A village nearby. A thousand people all living close to each other who are uh, delighted to see you. If you live off of alms, right, this is a good thing. You don't have to walk very far. There's a bunch of different people and they are like are supporting you. So what's being described is ideal, ideal conditions for if you're a monastic. And yet, they weren't able to get concentrated or to be mindful because of the um, the frightening images of the goblins. In Pali, the word is yakka, or the um, and then the stench, right, that made them feel sick and gave like their headaches. So not only were they not able to 
have their mind settled, they didn't feel well. How many of you have had situations, right, where you go to sit down, whether it's a loving-kindness practice or any other practice, where either or both of these is happening, the mind can't settle or you don't feel well? So here, the story is is it's being caused by tree deities. We don't know what causes. Maybe you do know exactly why some things cause. But it's I, for me, I was struck by this. Oh, so here's when there's some difficulties, whatever they may be. Can you soften your heart or practice in this way? I mean, this is a meditation subject or... Um, to bring to mind this discourse, which, as we talked about earlier, has all these different elements in it. There may be some elements that are particularly relevant at a particular time, or maybe it's just the act of bringing a discourse to mind that helps kind of settle the mind. It may just the act of trying to remember something, you know, giving the mind something to do, as opposed to thinking about the difficulties or the... Um, or the uh, physical difficulties that we may be having. And then for me, this part at the, near the end, or maybe I'll, I'll say this. Um, here, here, this is part of the commentary, part of this story. Thus, the Blessed One spoke this discourse to those monks for the sake of practicing loving kindness, for the sake of protection, and for the sake of reaching jhana, which is a concentration state, as a basis for insight. So three things here, um, for the sake of protection, oh, um, he gave the discourse for the sake of practicing loving kindness, for the sake of protection, and for the sake of reaching jhana as a basis for insight. So I'll unpack that a little bit. As I said earlier, sometimes concentration or mental development, we use that to settle the mind so that then um, some insights, that um, the freedom comes from the insights. So how might this be a protection? Protection from, we said fear, but what else might it protect us from? Your own um, ill will, uh, which will end up hurting yourself, digging up, filling yourself with hatred, and which can do no good. Um. Yeah, I think it's fantastic, right? Protect us from ill will. What else might it protect us from? So can we kind of microphone migrate back that way? There's there's an aspect for me that is pr- protecting a bit from trauma. Um, we don't have to just simply endure an unbearable situation. There's antidotes that we can draw on that are based in wholesome and goodness and non-harming. Um, and there's also, for me in the sutta, a harmonizing 
message, you know, being in balance, being in balance with nature, one not dominating the other, human versus nature, but really being, in, you know, more in symbiosis. Thank you. Anybody else have some ideas? Well, I think, um, you know, it, it, the, there's a number of things that come to mind, but one of them is um, here the monks go into this like perfect situation where there's no obstacles, there's no kind of difficulties. And, and you know, it's described as all so beautiful and that they become more beautiful than what is there. And um, so in a way it makes one think of when you lose touch with your surroundings, when you lose touch with your community, when you lose touch with your relationship with nature, spirits, people, um, so to protect one, to keep in others in mind so that you don't get so absorbed in your own process and practice that you, uh, you know, can get lost. Yeah, yeah, great, thank you. Well, well maybe while the microphone's traveling, okay. we'll... Uh, um. You know, maybe maybe uh, it's protection against harming oneself um, uh, in some way, and I'm not sure of what way. But um, it strikes me that um, I mean there is a there is a very clear thread between uh, the meta and um, the effect on the tree spirits, and they say it themselves that. You know, um, oh, they, you know, they love us. <laughs> and um, so it, it's almost as if had that state been there originally, when, they're fir- when they first arrived, this never would have happened. They never would have, you know, gotten ill and, fear- and fearful. Yeah, nice. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, another theme here that I um, noticed when I was looking at this and thinking about this is that, um, right, so the tree spirits, they show up with these goblins and the smells and all these things, and the monks are disturbed, but they don't tell anybody. So night after night after night, and they're getting worse and worse until they all come together, and the elder says, oh my gosh, (laughs) what's been happening to you guys? So they tell the elder, and then the elder tells the Buddha. So maybe this is building a little bit on what Tanya was saying. We support each other in practicing, whether you have a teacher or somebody else, another peer, but to share when there's difficulties that are happening, when, there's, when we feel like we're stuck and we don't understand or we don't know what's happening, what's going on. It's a way for, to kind of reinforce this idea that we practice together and we support each other. And then maybe I'll um, say this last part too, is that um, at the end here, that the, um, the Buddha, this ins- instructions he gives them is to, on 
the eight times of the month, that is, with the quarter moon, the half moon, the full moon, the, and the, the two halves moons, uh, the, um, recite this discourse, give a Dharma talk, hold discussion, rejoice, and pursue, develop, and cultivate this um, meditation subject. So this idea, again, of kind of like coming together and this being a, a well-rounded, uh, uh, holistic approach rejoice is in there, right? It's not just endure these difficulties as uh, some of you have mentioned before. So for me, I was kind of delighted to read the details here. Before I had thought like, oh, okay, isn't that cute? But I hadn't quite uh, really looked at it. Well, I didn't know a lot of these details here, so. Does anybody have a comment that they'd like to say before we move on to something else? Yes. Can we uh, use the mic? It's kind of nice that um, they befriended their demons and their demons became their allies. Oh, nice. So they're like massaging their backs. And, you know, <laughs> it was like, it's great. Thank you. That's such a good point. Because often... Um, you know, the instructions and the way that we practice are that the meditation obstacles actually turn out to be a support for us in the path. Those things that are difficult for us help point the way where we're stuck and we need to practice. Thank you. That's such a great way to, to highlight it, to think about that. Thank you. So a, a few of you have mentioned about like different translations of the Metta Sutta. And we're looking at this, right, as a particular translation it's done by um, Amaravati, which is like the, the mm, I don't know what the word is, the parent uh, monastery, and then Abhayagiri, which is up here in Ukaya. It's like the, I don't know. I, I'm not enough in there to know exactly, but they're definitely related, and they share leadership, and monks go back and forth, and they're definitely in the same tradition from in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. So that's the um, translation that we're, um, looking at, but you wouldn't have necessarily um, known it exactly by the way that I presented it to you. But the Metta Sutta is in verse, and in Pali, verse has a very particular meter, kind of like how Shakespeare—I don't know what has this pentameter thing. It's the same way with Pali. This means. When you're writing verse, you kind of have to take poetic license, quote-unquote, in order to get it to match the meter. So it's re- the Pali is really difficult to translate into English. There's a lot of room for interpretation. For me as a translator, when I'm looking at this, sometimes I'm stumped. Like, wow, I- I'm not exactly sure what's meant here. There's so many different ways that the grammar allow and the vocabulary allow so many different ways in which you could do this. And then just like we do with English, you use these um, esoteric poetic words. You know, like one that just comes to my mind in English, sometimes we say, ere I do this, which means like before I do this, but we never use that word ere, E-R-E, in spoken English, but it's kind of like a poetic version. The same thing is happening in the verse with Pali. So this is an introduction to say there's a lot of room for interpretation for translations, in particular with verse as opposed to uh, prose. Yeah. 
So it might be nice to look at some other translations. So I have here um, the same sutta that's translated by two other individuals. One is a Bhikkhu Bodhi. For those of you who know, he is the primary translator of the of the scriptures of the Pali Canon. If you were to go in the library here and pull off the scriptures, it would be Bhikkhu Bodhi, who was the translator. I have tremendous respect for him and a lot of affection for him too. He's pretty, he's devoted his life to this. He's an amazing person. In addition is Tanisaro Bhikkhu, sometimes known as Tan Jeff. He re- teaches here a couple times a year. He's also a major translator and all his translations are up on the web, freely available. So he's having a giant impact because this is what, if you wanted to Google Metta Sutta, probably his translation will come up or whatever sutta you want to do will be his translation. So Bhikkhu Bodhi and Tanisaro Bhikkhu, these are two Americans. Um, I think Tan Jeff, you know, I don't know exactly where they grew up, but both of them, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, when, as a young man, ordained and went to Sri Lanka and lived there for a couple of decades and he has since come back. Um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu um, he um, went to he's an American as well and went to Thailand and lived there for a few decades and came back so they went to different places and have a little bit different influence in terms of uh, how they kind of think about the dharma but both of them are influential and important in this community so let's see here So, the um, the Metta Sutta, as is the case for almost all verse, is done in. A, um, well, maybe it's not so obvious here. They're done. A verse has four lines in Pali, but it, that often turns into more lines in English. And the Metta Sutta has ten verses for a total of forty lines. So I'm going to pass this out, and then I'm going to invite you guys to look at the sutta. This um, page has three, the one that we've been chanting, and then Bhikkhu Bodhi and Ton Jeff. They're all like parallel next to one another. And I'm going to um, assign different verses to different groups and just explore. What's the different feeling? What's the different understanding? What's the different emphasis with these different translators? just to highlight where that we are reading a translation and that there is more than one way to look at this. So if I could, um, well, wait, let's see, one, two, I have one, two, three, four. Let's see, I like 10, 20. Let's get into groups of two. And, um, and then I'll um, come around and I'll assign you uh, which verses to focus on so that we otherwise it's too much to do this for the whole sutta but you could just pair up with one other person and then um, and you can look at the and I'll assign which verses to focus on so maybe one thing that I'll emphasize is that all these translations are correct, quote-unquote, right? There isn't like one's more accurate or one's better than the other, necessarily. But, I don't know, I just kind of offer this, just to remind us, we can see the hand of the translator, quote-unquote, and um, 
that's how it is until we all start learning Pali. <laughs> so for um, let's start with the first four lines, one, two, three, and four. Four verses, sorry, one, two, three, and four. So that's a number of you that looked at them. Was there any things that you wanted to point out? Either A, did you learn something more or understand a little bit differently what we had been chanting by looking at different translations? Or B, did you notice like, wow, there's really a difference? And I don't know. Well, you can say what, what, what you might have noticed. So I'm not sure where there's a microphone. Um. Oh, I think um, we did the wrong one. <laughs> I think we did two and three, and now I'm thinking maybe we had three and four. Um, that's okay. No, I think I, I think it was maybe two. Actually, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the commenter was kind of like more general. So um, we found that the first what the first translation that we studied this morning. Um, was kind of like the most poetic and the one that would be more appealing to say over and over. Um, the Bhikkhu Bodhi trans- t- translation was kind of um, almost like adding footnotes. So he's kind of clarifying or saying, using a much simpler grammar, um, to make it more accessible, but it's not something I would repeat. Um, and the third one I really didn't like. <laughs> um, like um, I think it's really departing from from the text, but it's almost like a, I mean the good thing is is using. Oh, I'm not here to judge, but um, he's using words that are more common in modern American English. Um, so he's, he makes the most changes in the world. Bhikkhu Bodhi doesn't make a lot of changes in, in the choice of words, but he's kind of changing the grammar to clarify, I find, or the structure of the text. He is changing the words to kind of like modern, modernize it. Um, but I would never repeat this version has no appeal to me. So it has a different heart quality. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else have a... Again, I kind of want to say uh, Ajahn Chinesso, he's, a, he's an incredible uh, teacher and translator, and I kind of I want to uh, support him, but we might think about why he's translating versus the Amravati Sangha's translating, for example. Do they have diff- the same objectives? I don't know. Do you want to say, Jordan? Yeah. Um, I think that it's interesting that um, that Bhikkhu Bodhi and Ajahn Tanisaro both use the word breakthrough. Um, and in particular, Ajahn or Bhikkhu Tanisaro used the word um, wants to break through to this peaceful state because it seems more like a plan of action. And... Um, Like in particular for me, um, like in the second part, the translation of um, 
like with in the original one it says unburdened with duties and then the other ones it says with few duties and like that word for me makes a lot a big difference because few duties seems like you're just a wandering monastic uh, um, but unburdened with duties seems more along the lines of right livelihood where you can live a normal life and do something without um, or do something that you feel comfortable living that way as in not just like renunciating everything and going and living in the forest mm -hmm. you know so that I mean that's interesting for me because that one word makes a lot of difference mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. great thank you what about verses 5, 6, 7, and 8? Anybody have some things they'd like to comment on or they noticed? Can we send a microphone back to Megan? Um, so we did 7 and 8, and the 7, the... <clears throat> Ajahn version of that uh, verse, I found that it really emphasized the importance. It says, as a mother would risk her life to protect her child, her only child, even so should one cultivate the limitless heart with regard to all beings. So the even so should one cultivate, uh, referring to risking her life, like that added risking her life, um, really emphasized the importance of that. Even though, you know, it, it did, it seemed import, important in the Amrati version, Amravati. I know, it's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the Ajahn really, like, emphasized that, too. Yeah. 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 It's quite something, right? How just the, because uh, I think it's what so with a boundless heart and on the Amaravati Sangha and with Ajahn Tanisra, it's even so. So just adding that one little word, even, yeah, kind of helps you maybe understand things or appreciate things differently. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. We did, um, we did seven and eight. Um, and um, I'm not sure of. Uh, Ajahn Thanissaro's um, translation. It's kind of third. And also, I think for for myself, and I wanted to try to understand, I would have liked to have read the whole text because I wanted to try to get an idea of what was going on in the translator's mind. But um, the is it Bhikkhu Bodhi? Is yeah, that the third one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that one struck me as uh, as outstanding. Um, as a translator, he in his translations, um, uh, he's using he or she. I'm not sure is using should very frequently, and that goes across all the translations. And then also uh, uh, does not mention the boundless heart, but discusses a state of mind without boundaries, and actually repeats that. So uh, he's a consistent translator, that's for sure. <laughs> but but it's also, that seems to be a pretty significant kind of shift in the meaning. Mm. The shift is uh, a mind without boundaries as opposed to a boundless heart. Yeah. it's uh, For those of you who don't know, in Pali, the word is chitta, and it means both mind and heart. 
Yeah, so the translator gets to choose whether they use one or the other, or sometimes they, I've seen some people call it a heart mind. They use both, so. Yes, yeah, so can we send it? Oh, you have the, so then we'll um, have Leah. Okay, so Megan. I just had a question. If you said, Polly, the heart and mind, um, does that kind of mean spirit or soul if you combine the two? No, I would say that they just don't make a distinction okay. Okay. between, like we kind of like have emotions or yeah. something like that is heart and thinking more is mind here in the Western world. And they didn't really make those distinctions. Okay. That's okay. what. So I th- yeah, I think a microphone, is, if it can go over here. To her. I think Leo, did you want the microphone? No, no. <laughs> I thought you did. Okay, so you, let's go on to... Um, Nine and ten. Oh, I think that's happened. Oh, sorry. It was maybe just the two of you guys. That... Can Megan? Can you give the microphone to Richard? Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm putting you guys on the spot. If you don't have anything to say. No, I, I have. Um, I, I did notice a couple things um, that helped in, in the uh, Amravati. Uh, translation all these years I've just had a little confusion about the tail end of it where it says one should sustain this recollection Uh, this is said to be the sublime abiding but I never it's like what recollection you know there's a sort of a confusion about how that wraps up but what the other translation really it kind of very distinctly clears it up it says one should resolve on this mindfulness colon, which means the next is, they call this a divine dwelling here. Here and then. And then, of course, Tanjeff's the same thing. He says, be resolved on this mindfulness. Boom. This is called a sublime abiding here and now. So it was very helpful for me to, to clarify that little bit of confusion over here with this one translation. And just as an aside... Um, a heart that is untroubled is Andy Lo- o- o- Olinsky's his turn of phrase I think it has to do with in the mother you oh, know, that a mind that is untroubled or heart that with a heart that is untroubled that's mm-hmm. how he translated mm-hmm. that little section and it's just I think it's fascinating to be able to see the different translations it, it helps like this really cleared something up for me yeah, you know, really. and you're pointing to a really big difference between a recollection and mindfulness. The same Pali word sati, sati, right? This is a sati center event. We use this word sati, we like it. It um, has these two meanings. It's associated with memory and it's associated with mindfulness. Ma- vast majority of the time it has to do with mindfulness. Yet sometimes it clearly has to do with memory. So here's the, the translators chose to kind of, you know, this um, one, this interpretation of it as sustain this recollection as opposed to sustain this mindfulness. It's up to you if you'd like to. Okay. So I just, um, again, want to emphasize that all three of these are correct. 
And these are all well-esteemed, highly esteemed, well-established translators. And just to notice that some of them have a different emphasis, a different tone, a different feeling, maybe. And it's impossible to translate without that, without that. So just kind of bring that into our awareness when we're reading texts. Yes. In a way, what you're suggesting is that we need to understand that the, the person who's translating will have biases, have causes and conditions will, that will influence how they decide to translate it. Absolutely. Right? So whenever we read something, maybe we should take that into consideration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you like sutta study, if you like kind of like poking around in these things, it can be a lot of fun to compare the different translators. And now, um, it used to be that um, Ajahn Tanisaro was the main one that was on the web, but just last year, this new one, uh, uh, Sujato, is a new translator, and he has this website that's called suttacentral.net. And then Ajahn Tanisaro is at access to insight.net. So now there's two translators that are up, uh, on the web they don't I'm sorry access to insight.org. oh access to insight.org okay suppose if you yeah if you uh, google one of these sutta names it'll probably send you to one of those places so if you're interested I just encourage you to look at that and let's take a break so it's 232 Can we come back at uh, 2.45? Thank you.